and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved brother, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now our text for this morning, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we need your help as we come to this mountain. Uh, These few words here are full of riches and complexity that our our tools seem inadequate for. And so would you help us? Would you give us clarity? Would you help us even to begin to grasp the glory of Christ? May that capture us today and change us for this week. And that will be the work of your Holy Spirit, and so we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know those rants that pop up from time to time, criticizing parents of being more interested in their mobile devices than they are in their children? Well, my son Samuel, who's one now, is determined to not let that happen in our relationship. (laughs) And so whenever I sit on the couch with the iPad, he uses whatever means necessary to come between me and that device. And the other night, 
while we were going through this wrestling match, he brushed up against one of the icons, and it opened with all these pretty colors. And he stopped, and he stared, and he went, Ooh! (laughs) That's the goal for this morning. That response is the goal for this morning. Paul, in our text, as he comes to the end of this prayer, where he has thanked God for the fruit that the gospel has produced, where he has asked for more fruit, and has said that that fruit will only come by Jesus, he now pauses and says, let me tell you a little bit more about that Jesus. And as he unfolds the icon of Christ, with all of his resplendent beauty, I'm convinced that Paul wants from us, as we hear this, the response of, woo. And I have to be honest, I can't create that response in you. But what I want to ask you for this morning is that you would join me in gazing at this picture, this portrait of Christ that Paul paints here in this text. And let's gaze together at this portrait and ask that God would recreate that response in us together. We'll look at the picture that Paul paints in two parts. First of all, Jesus as maker, and then Jesus as renovator. So Jesus as maker. If you want to get to know a person, you need to get to know their relationships. Okay, so if you want to get to know me, it's not enough to look at me and say, hey, there's a short, balding, round, white man. (laughs) You don't get to know much about me through that. You need to know that I'm the husband of Jessica, the father of JJ, Georgia, and Sam, uh, the son of of Tim and Sharon Robson, the brother of Julie and Charity and Tim Jr. That's where you will get to know me, is in my relationships. And it is the same for Jesus. Paul, as he wants us to get to know Jesus, he paints a picture of relationships. First and foremost, the relationship between Jesus and God. Verse 15, he is the image... Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now this idea is taken from the political realm where a king would put images of himself, statues, or stamp his likeness on coins to spread throughout his empire to remind people who he is, who's in charge. And so Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, represents the full power and authority of God. And actually, this is not the first time this language has been used in the Bible. It's used all the way back in the beginning when God makes Adam and Eve and says to them, you are my images. But that raises a question, doesn't it? Especially if you've been around the church for a while, you might be asking, wait a second, don't Christians say that Jesus is God? How can he be both image of God and God? We'll jump to verse 19. The fullness of God was pleased 
to dwell in him. So Jesus is God representing God. And we are here on the tricky terrain of Trinitarian theology. Okay? This very difficult, mysterious, but crucial teaching that God is both one and three according to a mathematics that we cannot understand. He is both one and three. He is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, according to the plan that God had made, becomes a man. He takes on skin and bone in the baby named Jesus. So that Jesus is God and image of God. God representing Himself. This is more than just theoretical knowledge for the seminary classroom. This is eminently practical for us. Because for Jesus to be God, an image of God, puts him in a second relationship. So a relationship not only with God, but a relationship also with creation. Back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. And what? He is the firstborn of all creation. And understand that when Paul talks about creation, he is speaking comprehensively, cosmically. Everything that exists, the little Greek word for all, is used eight times in six short verses here. Everything. Molecules to supernovas. Platypuses to Peyton Manning. <laughs> All relates to Jesus. Because he is the firstborn of creation. But what is that relationship? What does it mean for him to be the firstborn of all creation? Well, that is not a, a label of time. Right? We think about the firstborn, we think about the one who is born first. But Paul tells us here that Jesus is before all creation and that he is God, so he is not born, he just is. So for Jesus to be the firstborn of all creation, that is a title, not of time, but of status. Remember, I think most of us know this in the ancient world, the firstborn had a high status in the family. And the role of the firstborn was to inherit all the property that belonged to the family, and to care for that, manage that property on behalf of the family. All right? So Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Creation, all of it, is his property. It belongs to him. And then verse 16 expands this status. Because it says it not only belongs to him, but it is by him, it is through him, and it is for him. Here's the image that helps me hold this all together. All things. It's a house. What does every house need? It needs a designer. It needs a builder. And it needs a resident. Jesus is all three of those in relationship to all of creation. To everything that exists. He is designer. is by him. He is builder, it is through him, 
And He is chief resident. It is for Him. It is for His honor and His enjoyment, His pleasure. And this expansive status, all things by Him, for Him, through Him, verse 17 goes on to say He is before all things, He's outside of the house, but He is also inside the house because He holds all things together. This expansive status is what we mean when we say that Jesus is sovereign. Builder, designer, resident. Everything relates to Him as its or our sovereign. Whether you're a Christian or not, and whether you realize it or not, We're all looking for that. We are all looking for a sovereign in our life. A center that will integrate our life and this world. Something that can make sense of the dizzying experience of life on this rock. Someone or something to give us direction. Meaning, purpose. We're all looking for a sovereign. And there have been many candidates for that role throughout history. The Greeks had their logos, the principle of rationality. The modern world has the scientific method that all things are held together by the power of human observation, but I don't think either of those are prominent today. I think in our time, the prominent Dominant candidate for the role of sovereign is what Russell Reno, writing in the magazine called First Things, calls the sovereignty of desire. The sovereignty of desire. That what I want is the center. That is what makes sense of this life. That is what gives me direction meaning and purpose, what I want, getting what I want, and the lesser principle of not preventing other people from getting what they want. So, for example, last Sunday, Grammy Awards. Had a lot of conversation-producing performances. Uh, But one that did not produce as much talk, but I think captures the spirit of that night and the spirit of our culture, was a performance by Casey Musgraves, who sang her song, Follow Your Arrow. In the end of the chorus of that song, she sings, and let me remind you as she sings, this is not the rapper from Seattle, this is the country singer from Texas. She sings, When the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, roll up a joint or don't. Just follow your arrow wherever it points. Just follow your arrow wherever it points. Sovereignty of desire. I'm not wanting to enter into either the debates about marriage or marijuana, okay? (laughs) I want to draw your attention to that underlying current of the center of your existence is what you want. It's your arrow. So follow it wherever it points. 
And the tragic thing about that is not that desire is bad. Desire is not bad. According to Scripture, desire is good. But desire is a terrible sovereign. It is a terrible ruler. It fails socially. Experiment. Take a group of two-year-olds, put them in a room, tell them to follow their arrow wherever it goes, just lock the door. It's not going to work, right? It's not going to work. And two-year-olds are humanity at its most honest, all right? Without the pretense and the filters. And seriously, there is always a point at which our desires will come into conflict in a way that is irreconcilable by open-ended tolerance. It fails socially as a sovereign. But it's tragic because it also fails personally. If the center of your life is desire, getting what I want and not preventing others from getting what they want, it does not integrate your life, it fragments it. It takes you deeper into yourself and away from others and away from God. And it will leave you profoundly alone. But there's a better sovereign. There is a better sovereign. One whose design is more beautiful than you can imagine. One whose building is more skillful than you can afford. And one who designs and builds in order that he may dwell with you. Do you see that direction? That Jesus, as the designer and builder of all that is, he designs and builds it so that he can live in the house with us. Well, at least that was the intention. But the problem with the picture that Paul has painted so far is that that's not the way the story played out, was it? And the story didn't play out that way according to that original intention because of sin. And here's what sin is. Sin is the house attempting to vote out the designer, builder, and chief resident. Sin is the creation, us, Saying to the Creator, no thanks, we'll find our own sovereign. We'll find our own ruler. And because of the problem of sin, Paul keeps painting. And he paints a picture of Jesus not only as maker, but as renovator. Because sin shook the foundations of the house of creation. And it threw everything out of alignment. All of those nice straight lines are now crooked. And so creation needs a renovation. And Paul paints a picture of Jesus as the renovator. In addition to describing Jesus' relationships both with God and creation, Paul adds one more relationship in this portrait of Jesus. And it's the relationship between Jesus and us. Between Jesus and the church. The community of people who are identified with Him by faith. The body of which He is the head. The source and sustenance. 
And what I want you to notice about this relationship between Jesus and the church is the overlap between creation and church. So remember, creation, Jesus is designer, builder, resident. What about church? Well, verse 19 tells us he is the beginning. That's a weak translation. It's the Greek word arche. It's probably better translated something like founder, but it's the word from which we get the word architect. He's the designer. We find once again the word firstborn. Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation that was ruined by death. He is now the firstborn of a new creation that is built in his church by the power of his resurrection. He is designer. He is builder. And once again, verse 19, he's resident. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Why? So that he could reconcile and make peace. So that he could once again build a house and live in harmony with his creation. Jesus, this this world, because of sin, it deserved to be condemned. And us along with it. This house of creation. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't walk away from this house that attempted to vote him out. He rolls up his sleeves and he enters the mess. And he begins to put together a new structure. One that will replace the old. And one that will allow him to live with us. In peace. In harmony. And true eternal life. And to accomplish this renovation project, it cost him his blood. For Jesus to be the renovator, he had to shed his blood. And Paul here connects the words blood, peace, and reconciliation. And by doing that, he evokes the temple and sacrifices of the Old Testament. So you remember the temple, it was the house of God. It was the place where God's unique presence dwelt. Actually, in Psalm 68, it says that God was pleased to dwell there. Hear the echo in verse 19. God was pleased to dwell in the temple because it was the hint of the coming renovation project when God's presence would move from building to body. And how did God's people come to the temple? God's house. How were they able to come and to live with him as they were intended to do? They came through blood, right? The blood of the sacrifices. God is saying, in order to be with me, the problem of sin and death will have to be dealt with. And so Jesus, as the renovator, is both temple and sacrifice. He is the presence of God, made flesh, so that he can pour out his blood as a sacrifice to bring us into the life-giving presence of God. He gave himself so that we could once again dwell with our sovereign. Jesus took the condemnation 
that the house of creation deserved, the house including us, He took the condemnation of that house so that He could rebuild it, so that He could rebuild us and make us a part of His work of new creation. And so when we look at the throne, there is a sovereign there, one whom we should worship, one whom we should love, one who should fill our lives with direction, meaning, and purpose, one to whom we should give everything that we have. But as we look at that throne, what do you see? The designer, builder, and resident is a lamb who still bears the scars of his slaughter because of your sin and who was raised for your new life. Marvel at the cost that Jesus paid in order to make you His own. In order to include you in His work of renovation. His work of new creation. Jesus is a masterpiece. We're coming to the end of our time, and there's just there's so much more that we could say from this passage. Paul paints a portrait that is a masterpiece. And how do we respond to masterpieces? You go see a painting by Rembrandt and bring your crayons along to fix what you see as flaws, deficiency in his creation. Needs to be a little sparkly purple added here. (laughs) Is that how we respond to masterpieces? No, we stand before them in amazement. We gaze at them with admiration and adoration. How much more should that be our response to the one who is the image of of the invisible God, one in whom God was pleased to dwell, one whom poured out His blood so that we could know peace and reconciliation. Will you gaze at Him with adoration? Let's pray.